0: Our scripture reading today is from Matthew seven, thirteen and fourteen. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. But the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Thank you very much. Good morning, everyone. It's a great delight for me to be back here. Um, I was here maybe a couple of months ago. Um, I worked literally just across the street in the Divinity School and it actually was when I came to speak here the last time was the first time for me to be at Scarrett Bennett. I've been at Vanderbilt for 12 years and I just love this architecture. I did my graduate work in England and I studied at a place that had a chapel like this. And so it's uh, really great to be able to think about uh, the beauty of holiness and to really think about the Lord in whom we have our true identity and through whom we have our true sense of freedom. So if it is okay, let's pray together one more time and look to the word. Gracious God and glorious Lord, as we ponder realities that are right around us, in a couple of days, it'll be the 4th of July, in which we celebrate the freedom that was won at such a dear cost. And it becomes an occasion, or at least ought to be an occasion, for us to think about the various types of freedoms that are in our world. Uh, Some people crave for it. Some people desire it and and yet not have it. Others don't even think twice about it because it is such a part of our own journey and surroundings. Gracious Lord, we pray that you will help us to see that in our obedience we find our true freedom in you, Lord. So as we look to this passage and the Lord who has spoken these words, may our listening and speaking be humble and bold and courageous and molded by the Spirit of God so that through whose wonderful ministry we may become more and more like you. In your name we pray, amen. I don't know about you, but if you were listening to the text that was just read for us, um, which is about entering the narrow gate... My immediate reaction after reading this text a few months ago when I found out that I'll be preaching on this was, why do I get these tough texts all the time? Entering the narrow gate. And Jesus makes it abundantly clear that the most enjoyable and easy access is the wide gate, which according to Jesus, the incomparable teacher, inexorably leads to destruction in spite of his appealing appearance. Furthermore, Jesus points out that far more people enter the wide gate of destruction, death, and desolation. In other words, for this gate, this gate that leads to death sells out every game. What about the gate that leads to life? This gate is narrow, it's hard, and few find it. So you can imagine, I don't know if you how Difficult it'll be for anyone to talk about it in a context like this. Meaning something like this, is this applicable for the church today? If you think about the whole history of the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, it went something like this, that Luther and others, and Luther we'll talk about in just a little bit, felt that, uh, for one reason or another, that it was unsafe to be in the Catholic Church. So they left. And then there's a group of Anabaptists who became the forebearers of Baptists today who felt that to remain in the Lutheran context would jeopardize their soul. So they left it. Meaning, one of the more ironic applications of this text was few will find it. So they're trying to find the smaller and smaller group in whom and only in whom you will have the assurance that we really belong and we really made it. It's becoming more and more exclusive group. And so there is a sense of exclusionary as well as kind of universalistic kind of appeal that Jesus has throughout his many dicta. At some point, he sounds very, very kind of, no one can come to me except, no one can come to God except through me. At the same time, he sounds very universalistic. He says, all of you who are weary and heavy laden, come unto me because you'll find rest. And I think we do well to think about both these tensional realities in the many sayings of Jesus. He must appear at one point very, very exclusive, but on the other hand, he comes across as strikingly universalistic. All of you are invited. What does that mean? As we come toward the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is reminding these followers that to truly follow him would require a great deal more than merely lounging around listening to Jesus for a couple of hours. The Sermon on the Mount to have read it or to have spoken it, probably scholars say two to three hours of kind of saying these things. So if that was all that was required, and Jesus requires far more than that, so it's not just listening to him for a couple of hours, there's going to be a true cost to discipleship. And Jesus, out of his deep concern and full of love, tells his would-be disciples as to what life might be like were they to take up the call to follow seriously and make it their new life vision and reality. Please allow me to make a, 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 hopefully an equalizing and leveling confession here. Rather than running to the narrow gate, I often find myself running away from it. And while I might not be running conversely to the wide gate of destruction by default, it seems I am ever so slowly and surely getting mired into that path of the ultimate nothingness. Augustine of Hippo, a fourth century theologian, pastor, and a philosopher, famously quipped that since God is everything and the ultimate being, and since evil has no ultimate part in God, then evil has to be nothing because it has no substance. Then destruction, death, and hell are all things that ultimately lead to no thing, no entity, no substance. And yet, he raises this question. Why are they so popular and exercise such a powerful pull for the majority of people in this world, including all of us, certainly starting with me? That is the question. Why is it so much harder to train up a child in doing what is right you don't have to teach much you know, with our kids about what to do wrong because they'll kind of pick it up through osmosis, no problem. But it seems that it's a gargantuan task to train ourselves, to teach ourselves, young and old, as to what the right path is, the path that is few and narrow and full of perils. Why are our pathways toward gates of destruction so popular? Is it because, simply because they offer more fun and frenzied joy, an uncontrolled bacchanalia, if you're like me, I might not take the path toward a narrow gate that leads to life, but I certainly applaud those who do. I may not go and work out at CrossFit every day, but if I hear about somebody who's doing it, I say, way to go. I feel like I should do it, but I find myself not doing it. I might be, or you might be, a great spiritual Monday morning quarterback. One of my favorite poems, in fact, talks about this so poignantly. It is The Road Not Taken by Robert Frost. Two rows diverge in a yellow wood. And sorry I could not travel both, and be one traveler long I stood, and looked down one as far as I could to where it bent in the undergrowth. Then took the other just as fair, and having perhaps the better claim, because it was grassy and wanted wear. Though as for that, the passing there had warned them really about the same. And both their morning equally lay in leaves, no step had trodden black. Oh, I kept the first for another day. Yet knowing how way leads on to way, I doubted if I should ever come back. The last stanza here, I shall be telling this with a sigh, somewhere ages and ages hence. Two rows diverged in a wood, and I, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. Scholars debate about the true meaning and authorial intent of frost. Some say he was just being ironic, you know, he says you can take any road you like, and that's what it is. But according to the wisdom garnered by the hallmark greeting cards, especially in graduation, I don't know if you've seen this phrase, the last stanza, I took the one less traveled by, and that has made all the difference. I've seen at least like five different graduation cards that has that particular language there. It is about taking the less-trodden path and how it makes all the difference. In essence, Jesus is urging his listeners then and readers now to take this call of the teacher of inimitable profundity and conviction seriously enough to journey with him. Even if it means it's a minority report and certainly not the popular route. Then the question becomes, why would anyone ever want that? Taking Jesus seriously means a sober and serious and sustained hard look at ourself, our savior. And the shape of salvation and the societal pressures that impinge upon our step toward the Lord of life, who is ironically, more often than not, memorialized in the image of his death. I'd like to share three points to help us better understand what Jesus is tough saying meant for the followers then and what it means for contemporary followers now. Three points are as follows. Problems of perspectives, presence of a person, promise of perils. So we're gonna talk about problem, presence, and promise. First, the problem of perspectives. Before I get to this part of the Sermon on the Mount, I would like for us to think about another saying of Jesus, which I believe might prove pivotal in our understanding of what Jesus is getting at here in Matthew 7. In Matthew 22, 36 through 40, Jesus was asked, Teacher, what is the greatest commandment in the law? Jesus replied, you know this so well. Love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is quite like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Now let me ask you a question. These two summary statements about the law have one word in common. What word is that? Four letter word spelled like love. Love the Lord your God. Love your neighbor. Now, but then the thing is, what is the summary of the law, right? So what has law and love got got to do with one another? One of the most fundamental effects of the fall, or our great rebellion against the triune God, is that we fail to see the inseparable connection between law and love. This most tragic dichotomy in our life journey will cause us to resent God and ultimately causes us to declare our independence from God because we feel as though God's dialogue with us in the Decalogue, for instance, was born because of some divine paranoia to control us. Let me try to put in a parental language. Um, so I became a father kind of late in life, so um, um, I didn't learn this lesson until more recently. So we have one child and he's a 12-year-old boy. And I, as I'm trying to parent this one guy, I think back a lot on my mom and dad's parenting. My father was relatively absent from my life, but my mom was very much involved parent. And I was thinking a lot recently about this whole thing because I thought my mom was really like a helicopter mom, like uh, ever hovering over me. And I really resented that because I thought that she was all about law and not about love. You see what I mean? And we can easily begin to resent God because if we feel like God is ever kind of, you know, pressing in on us and telling us don't do this and do that, and then we will start to resent God. We may not say it in our small group, but we know deep down, when we think about the word God, we feel like we should run away. Feel like we should run away or some things um, that someone, God is someone that we should try to avoid. This is someone telling me I should stay right here, not, not walk around. It's okay i like to walk around when i'm speaking but okay i'll stay right here this. so um basically we can think about our relationship with god in that way that god is more about law than love or conversely for some of us god is all about love and never about the law that i can you know i'm sort of free and 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 you know i can do what i want uh, as i see fit So I may not be an antinomian, but I'm I'm an autonomian, meaning this, that I basically redefine the law. Modern life, as I immerse myself with students at Vanderbilt University for seven years of my life, and my wife and our son, we lived on the Vanderbilt campus at Ingram Commons as one of the 10 faculty heads. I lived with 150 freshmen every day for seven years. That's why I lost so much hair, by the way, and graying. I mean, like, it's so much fun at the same time because you're in on it 24-7, right? Visits to a number of places that I didn't have to visit before and a number of things like that. And just really fun, but at the same time, deeply frustrating, but all the while getting a sense of kind of in local parentis, in the place of parents. And so often we tend to err on one side or the other. You know what I mean? Because, I mean, look at your personalities and kind of think about Think along with me. Some of us err on being really legalistic. i got to keep the law all the time. Others are like, it's okay, just more about embrace. And in the way that we understand God, in the way that we understand any religions, especially Christianity, I think we tend to err on one side or the other. And that, I submit to you, is one of the results of the fall. That we tend to see God as someone we either have to avoid or someone who is so loving that he's not going to make any demands upon us whatsoever. But this tragic dichotomy in our life journey will cause us to resent God, and like I said, ultimately cause us to declare our independence from God. So think about that in this independence kind of day, kind of time right now, just in this milieu. To declare our independence from Britain was a great thing for this country, not a great thing from the standpoint of Great Britain, but at the same time, we think about our independence from God. See, fundamental issue, the fundamental kind of issue of sin is that we desire to be our own masters. We desire to be our own rewriters of the law and rewrite the law. So that is the declaration of independence that has indeed grieved the heart of God. But here's the thing. God does not have a paranoia. God did not give us the law because he has some paranoia. Otherwise, you know, he really wants to control us. And that's the purpose of the law. No, law comes after love. And without love, law means nothing. Let me say it again. Law comes after love. And without love, law means nothing. You as a parent or you as a lover of your spouse, you know, is that, okay, this, these are some of the things that we would like to kind of keep as our rules of engagement. But you have absolute disregard for that. It's like, I don't care. I don't give a flying rip about what that is that really does tell me something profound about the dearth of love you have for the mutually agreed upon laws that you got right now. Yet law and love will keep the order, both divine and human. Thus, every time we hear something from God, we have a strong tendency to interpret either as law or love. There's an interesting book called Stealing Jesus, How Fundamentalism Betrays Christianity, written by Bruce Bauer, B-A-W-E-R. It was written about 20 years ago, and in it, he argues that liberal Christians emphasize a love of God, and the fundamentalist Christians emphasize a law of God, if you have to emphasize one or the other. And I've run into so many people, both at the Divinity School as well as Christ Prez, who say, I grew up in a fundamentalist home where it was all about do's and don'ts, right? More about don'ts than do's, right? don't do this, don't drink, don't play cards, don't go to the movies, or go with those who do, or something like this. So it was lists of things that you should not do. It was really restrictive and prohibitive type of religion. I'm not sure if I agree with that entirely, but because among conservative Christians, there has been a tendency, recent tendency, to champion love at all costs as well. But think about the sort of dichotomy we have, law and love. Response of the law, regarding today's text, would be something like this. Wait, I have to keep that. I have to go through the, inner, the, the narrow gate and I have to be on the way that is narrow and hard and only a few walk on it. If I don't enter through the narrow gate, I'm undone and I'm doomed. Response, on the other hand, of love would be some, and only love and not law would be something like this. Wait, Jesus can possibly be asking me to do that. Jesus, who is the lover of my soul, will never ask me to do that. So some of us downplay texts like this, texts that make hard demands seemingly on our life. So our contemporary lectionary, which is like the worship guide for main, many mainline churches, does not contain, contain today's text as part of the gospel readings. There are many gospel readings for 52 Sundays, and this wasn't one of them. If I point my finger at the con- contemporary lectionary, let me be honest, if I have to write up if I have to write up a list of gospel texts to preach from each Sunday, I don't know that I'll put this one in there. Because if you're a preacher, and especially if you're preaching in front of people that you don't really know, you don't want to come in and offend people and just leave before the service ends because you have to speak at the other location at 11 o'clock. You don't want to do that. So I think there's a tendency for us to kind of recreate God in our own image in some ways. I'm well aware of that, and that is called idolatry. slightly differently why is the gate of life in the road that ultimately leads to the fulfillment of life so narrow thus prompting jesus to say that only a few find it if these words do not unsettle our religious sensibilities and ethical securities i don't know what would before you say "Wait, wait wait why are you taking me back to the law i'm already loved and free and justified in jesus bro let's travel down our collective memory lane and situate ourselves on the hills at a mount where Jesus, our Lord, Savior, friend, and example, sat down to proclaim the manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. You have not read Romans yet, the book of Romans yet, nor have you heard of the apostle Paul, okay? You might be a cheesemaker who is excited that Jesus called you a peacemaker, or you might be a Jewish widow or Roman centurion or Samaritan merchant who's done his best to hide one's own ethnic identity for fear of financial loss or ethnic reprisals. And all of you hear these words of the narrow gate, broad gate, life and death, and the numerical improbability of you making it. How would you respond? What I'm asking you to do is to reread today's text by immersing ourselves in the first century situation. Put yourself in that situation of those who are listening to the message for the first time. How does that transposition affect our reading and interpretation of these life-giving words from this harsh teacher? problem of perspectives is this. We tend to interpret this either as a text that is primarily about the law of God or primarily about the love of God as would be demonstrating the death of the Messiah. I'm saying that, that that's a fundamental problem of our vision of God. God is not either law or love. God is both this and that. Let's put it this way. God was always in love. Did you know that? God was always in love between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the essence of God is overflowing eternal love. You can even say that the triune love was the basis of all laws, cosmic, physical, metaphysical, ethical, and religious. Law without love will lead you to destruction through exhaustion that comes comes from self-righteousness or self-loathing, which are actually flip sides of the same coin. Love without law will lead us to destruction through the path of indulgence or doing it our way. Like I said, around the time of the Reformation or beginning of modernity, one of the ways that this failure of both love and law manifested itself was in antinomianism, living against the law, doing whatever you want. Nowadays, it seems that we have a slightly different version of the same problem. A word I introduced earlier, autonomianism. Auto meaning self, I am the law. I interpret reinterpret the law so that law of, even of God so that it'll in no way contradict my vision and version of the good life and the good book and the good news. So how do we overcome the problem of perspectives? If the first century hearers heard it as a tough clarion call of forsaking all, leaving behind meaning more like the law And if the 21st century hearers, who are reformed Protestants, hear it as an irrelevant part of the Jesus, many hard sayings that do not amount to much because we know the ending. That's also a perspectival problem. Law or love or law and love. That leads me to our second point, presence of a person. In the Jewish tradition, the Torah was the embodiment of Yahweh. The law was regarded as a sacrosanct because it was given by the Redeemer of Israel, the liberator of the Hebrew slaves, and the lover above, above all lovers who had this sacred jealousy and zeal for the people of Israel, precisely because for them to love anything or anybody else would mean death and destruction. And God knew that. God gave them the law out of the love that he had for that redeemed People of Israel. In other words, the Jewish understanding of the law was not merely a set of abstract principles or some kind of mechanistic laws of the cosmos. No, there was a person, divine though he was, nonetheless a real personal presence. Now, think about this. One of the scandals of Jesus, right? Because Jesus came and shocked a lot of people. His teaching was seen as revolutionary. Some liked it, but many did not like it have you thought about this before that if you do a kind of a percentage breakdown of those who follow Jesus as opposed to those who did not after three years of ministry the vast vast majority of the people in the Jewish society did not follow Jesus right I mean think about that's that's a proven fact that the vast majority of people thought that like what and that's why a lot of people a lot of kind of Uh, more secular scholars would like to debunk the notion of, the you know, was Jesus ever real because how did it grow so fast? And there are multiple explanatory matrices that are used to talk about the growth of Christianity as something other than maybe there is something to do with the message of Jesus. Maybe Jesus proved to be what he said he was. But nonetheless, there was a real scandalous nature of what he said. Now, let me tell you what the scandal was. The fundamental scandal of Jesus' teaching was this that he had the audacity to claim to be the embodiment and fulfillment of the law. He's a former woodworker, a carpenter, someone who is now building a project. You know, there are lots of homes going up in Nashville. Every time I see a carpenter, I sometimes think about Jesus. Like, you know, no disrespecting people who are in the contracting kind of business and so on, but they're not usually regarded as like the pinnacle of you know, the society's kind of, you know, whatever, glory and glitz, right? Jesus came from that background. It is completely understandable that the religious establishment, the intellectual kind of you know, leaders thought that this guy was an utter nut job. Who does he think he is? We know where you came from. We know your parentage. We know that you didn't go to the right school. And who are you to tell us that you are the embodiment of, the, of God? He said that the law and the prophets were pointing toward his coming and that he was the one who alone could render perfect obedience the law jesus said don't think that i came to abolish the law far from it i have come to fulfill the law if you're listening to it if you're part of the religious establishment you're not going to be saying way to go bro you're going to be saying what did you just say that's not kosher that's not acceptable that's not cool at all something that was and that's who he was so let's think about the presence of this person At one level, it is so rudimentary, the second point of presence of a person, that it borders on ridiculous. Duh, Jesus was there speaking these words. Yes, I know. But let's think about the presence of this person. Yes, a former woodworker, carpenter, someone who was not part of the kind of leading, kind of, you know, leading lights of the Jewish society at the time. And so he's teaching this. And this Sermon on the Mount, as you well know, was the beginning of his ministry, public ministry. And he's kind of proclaiming the sort of manifesto of the kingdom of heaven. Yet who else is he? He's the one who said, I'll never leave nor forsake you. He told his followers that I will not leave you or forsake you. I will come back and take you home. Again and again, Jesus promised his presence to his bewildered flock. Just as Frederick Douglass The freedom fighter Parks, excellence in the Civil War era and much beyond said, if there is no struggle, there is no progress. So let's think about this narrow and wide gate typology in light of the life and death of Jesus. What gate do you think he entered? The narrow gate or the wide gate? What path do you think he took? The narrow path or the broad path? To be sure, the first time they heard Jesus say these words, they had yet to witness what Jesus would actually do after uttering these profoundly insightful words. Yet you and I have the insight, the benefit of hindsight. We have the records of Jesus' sayings and deeds and so on in New Testament. So you and I both know the presence of this person. Martin Luther said in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning and the end of our identity and journey is Jesus. He said, having encountered life in Jesus, we run along, fumble along, falter, and backslide, and yet recover our steps and keep in steps with the Spirit of God, all because Jesus will not let us go. Christ himself and the whole heavenly host are at my side and have traveled this very same way, preceding me to heaven in a beautiful and long procession. Until the last day, all Christendom will be traveling on the same road, and this road is called the hard way, And a narrow gate but jesus says just cling to me and i will make it nice for you pleasant and easy giving you enough strength to travel the road with ease so after i preached the sermon just you know and at central i was leaving to come here and then one person ran after me and said thank you for the sermon it was really depressing and then he suggested that maybe you might wanna talk about what you actually gain by entering the narrow gate, which I'm about to tell you. And I was like, you are right. I made it, made it. So, and I apologized to him and I said, well, so let me tell you about this, the narrow gate. When you think about the narrow gate, what comes to your mind, right? When you think about, so is stuff that is worth gaining and going after, they're not always the easy path, right? I mean, think about, um, so a friend, friend of mine uh, runs a uh, what do you call it uh, a yoga studio um, in Philadelphia and she said you know what it's only the chosen the few and the proud and the marines or something like that the few and the proud and the, the yoginis or whatever you're called right and this is really hard but it's really worth it I was thinking about that right I was thinking about so on the one hand we tend to look at this text and say oh it's really tough and I, I Jesus is really off-putting you know, he's really exclusionary and so on and so forth. But things that are really worth gaining and keeping for a while, they're not easy to come by. It requires hard work. It requires dedication. And best of all, this story of Jesus, there's a presence that is promised. Jesus said, you know what? I'll never leave you nor forsake you. From here on out, I've known you from eternity past. I know you and I know you. I know about you before you have actually stepped into tomorrow. I know you many, many morals to come and I promise my presence with you. Jesus said these words, and Jesus lived these words, and if the great Christian truth is worth believing, then we live with the conviction that the same former woodworker who lived and said these words some two millennia ago is still alive, not as a faint memory, nor merely as some eco-spiritual principle, but as real, as real as the presence of the table in front of me is. Look at this table. This table is real, right? It's not some kind of phantom of your imagination. So then what I'm saying is this. Jesus is as real as this table. And you say, no way, man. No, no, really. The historic identity of Jesus is when people say, yeah, he was there two millennia ago. And really think about and wrestle with that notion. Where is he right now? And is he for real? Is he as real as the table is, as this dude Paul Lim is averring that he is? And think about that. This presence of a person is what keeps me going, what keeps you going in our journey toward him, toward the end, which is also the true beginning of joy and ending. That leads me to my last point, promise of perils. Promise of perils. You might say, Paul, why don't you just end the sermon with the presence of a person? Why do you have to kind of drag us down by saying promise of perils? Well, because I wanna be real about life, right? All of us go through our lives in order to shield ourselves from a lot of disasters and tragedies. And that's native instinct for all of us. Yet at the same time, for whatever reason, to live this life means that you have to embrace certain bits and big bits of troubles and tribulations and trials. Promise of perils. What does that mean? In many churches, there is an amnesia about this. What Jesus promised is not an easy life. What Jesus promised is not a life full of prosperity, power, and pomp. What I do oftentimes, especially since I teach at a place like Vanderbilt, great university and so on, I like to experience what it is like to be a Christian outside of the university. So um, not every summer, but many summers, I've gone to places like Tanzania and Malaysia, Indonesia, Sri Lanka, Kenya, uh, Ethiopia, and I'm there ostensibly to teach about God, but I learned so much about the living God from my sisters and brothers there. And as I worship with them, I'm often struck, as oftentimes in urban squalor, and they are so much more full of joy. And I used to think that, are they just on some kind of Jesus heroin? They're trying to escape reality? Is that what it is? No, I came to this kind of more sober conclusion that they have some deeper connection with Jesus than in many ways that I do. I'm, I may be there as a professor, but they know more about Jesus in the living kind of real ways than I do. And I would often ask them, so what do you think Jesus is promising you? What is the promise of God in Jesus for you? And they said, you know what? Jesus said, I am with you always. It is that presence of Jesus. Yes, Jesus said, in this world, you have many trouble, tr- troubles, but be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. And he says, you know, so in I mean, I was there in, in Nairobi shortly before the terrorist attack happened in this big shopping center. And I was, a couple of weeks later, I was calling some of my friends to see if they were okay. And they said, you know, Brother Paul, I want you to know that this world and his, all of its glory is passing. And we just really need to be reminded, as a sober reminder, that all of our joys, we need to hold them not so tightly. Because as Cory ten Boom said, when God takes them away, they may not hurt as much. So there is something about this promise of perils, but promise of perils and promise of presence. Jesus did not make the connection that if you're rich in this world, you're blessed, and if you're poor in this world, you're damned. Some of us think that way. Maybe it's the kind of Weberian Protestant ethic that gets us in the wrong pathway of that, but quite the opposite is true. Jesus said it is harder for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven than it is for a camel to enter through the eye of a needle. And we say to ourselves, oh, surely we know Jesus was kidding. No, he wasn't kidding. You say, oh, it was a hyperbole. Okay, hyperboles do have a point. What is the point? What is Jesus really kind of causing us to wrestle with? We don't often wrestle with God. I think one of the ways that we can really worship God is take his word so seriously that we wrestle with it. What is this person really saying? What Jesus is saying is that this world alone can never be, thus should never be the measuring stick of one's worth and value. This world here and now is not, is not the only world you know. So I was nurtured in a, um, basically an irreligious home. So I didn't become a Christian until I was 21. So um, I'm 50 now. So 20 years of living without God in Jesus Christ and the 30 years of living. So I was a junior in college. And one of the things that I came to realize about this world, I mean, after I became a Christian was Until I became, before I was a Christian, all I knew about life was this world, this life, and that's all there was. So I want to maximize my pleasure. I want to maximize my profit. I want to maximize my personal space or whatever. Because after this, who knows, right? But one of the most fundamental sea changes in my life after I became a Christian was that, oh, there is another life. This life is just the beginning, and death is just another entrance into eternal life. That there is something called eternity that is already, and God has already won that victory through Jesus Christ. It's already, but not yet. That eternity is already, I'm starting to sense and and experience it because when you come to the Lord's table for the Lord's supper, what you're doing is we proclaim the Lord's death until what? Until he comes. So there is a connection. So for Christians, if you are a Christian in this room right now, I want you to really think about what, is, what does eternity do for me in my life's journey here and now? Let me try to illustrate it this way. So we have a son who is a 7th grader, rising 7th grader, and he's got one of the summer readings that he has to do. And it's a book called The Hobbit. Right? Now, I had never read The Hobbit, I never read The Lord of the Rings when I was in seventh grade. In fact, I never even heard of J.R.R.R.R.R. Tolkien at all. I don't know why it was, but when I was growing up in Seoul, Korea, it wasn't really a big thing. So, So we watched, so guess what I did? So my son hadn't read it. So you know what we did? We watched a movie. He's, he's reading it, I, I'm reading it, so he got a copy, I got a copy, we're reading it, but I was kind of curious to know. So spoil the book in a way, right? I mean, this is something that you should never do for yourself, and I regret, I don't know if I, know if I regret doing it, because sometimes that kind of genre is not my favorite, right? So, but then I watched a movie, and you know what a, one of the benefits of it is we know how it ends. I know how it ends, I know how the book ends. So in, in a way, it takes the kind of a joy out of finding all the thrills and twists and turns in a plot, right? But does that mitigate the, the promise of perils? That there are these kind of, because you know, the, the Bilbo Baggins, I mean, that's his life journey, right? It's the going on that journey that is tomorrow is uncertain, and there are perils of galore, and he's going forth and forth, but me as a reader, I know how the book ends. And let me try to illustrate it for our situations here. You know that you know how it's going to end, don't you? If you don't know, you should look at your Bible. The last book of our Bible is called the Book of Revelation. The last chapters of the Book of Revelation beautifully illustrate, in kind of figural languages and mystical texts, how it's going to end. That God has already kind of given us a, a, a script. That's why the Bible calls scripture, and you and I have the playbook, playbook called the Bible. So we, don't, we, we know there are perils a galore in many ways, yet there is also the presence of the person, the promise of the person that I will never leave nor forsake you. That in fact, Jesus says in the book of Revelation that I will wipe away all of your tears. There will be no more death, no more dying, no more mourning, because all things have become new. So I don't know about you, but for me, yes, there is a kind of parallel reality of peril, perils on the one hand, but also the presence of a person. Presence of a person who has tasted death so that he may be able to come back and say, I know exactly what it is like. You see, it is perils, life is full of perils. For example, you may know Eric Little, the the protagonist of the movie, The Chariots of Fire, one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, he refused to run on Sunday, right during the 1924 Olympics. He was a sprinter, 100-meter guy, and uh, the heat for the 100, qualifying heat for 100-meter dash was going to be on a Sunday. He said, "I'm not going to run." It made everyone furious. And then another guy said, "You know what? I've already won a medal, so why don't we ask Eric to run on, run for 400 meters? That'll be like Usain Bolt to run 400 meters. Usain Bolt is perhaps one of the greatest sprinters ever, but he doesn't run 400s, does he? He doesn't." I'm telling you, he does 100 and 200. I'm sure he can run 400. I don't know whether he will win that because they're really very, very different events. Eric Little, who was trained as a sprinter, as a 100 meter guy, is now running 400 meters. And in the movie, there's a scene where they're all kind of getting warmed up. And then, you know, Eric Little is there and then several American runners. And then one of the runners who's not running in that event because he was a sprinter, his name was Jackson Schultz. He comes over to him and he hands him a piece of paper. And it's one of the most memorable scenes in the movie. It says, and then Eric Little opens up the little piece of paper, and it says, it says in the old book, he who honors me, I'll also honor. Meaning this, Eric Little was in in, in over himself. I mean, he's the people cursing him out saying all kinds of stuff and what are your principles you know most more important is your national allegiance and patriotism and he says no god comes beyond the country and he doesn't do it he was in it was in a lot of kind of pressure cooker and then jackson schultz knowing it gives him a piece of paper says you know you're in a world of perils but i want you to know that he who honors me i will also honor to me that's a really beautiful friendship that is formed across the national boundaries knowing that you and i worship the same lord God did not promise a peril-free life. God promised his presence with us. Let me conclude here. Presence of perils, sure, there is this you know, thing called problems that we face a galore, but it is this. That it is ultimately in, in our interpretation of law or love, and it is actually both, not either or. One of my favorite New Testament scholars is someone named Frederick Dale Bruner. His commentary on Matthew, he says this, In summary, the two great facts about Jesus are what we may call his gate and his road. The theological gate of his gracious gracious substitutionary death and resurrection. And two, the ethical road of his just as gracious commands to follow him in rugged daily discipleship. Paul majors in the former, the theological gate of his gracious substitutionary death, without neglecting the latter of rugged daily discipleship. Matthew majors in the latter without neglecting the former. This truth is best, best encapsulated in one of the prayers from the Anglican Book of Common Prayer. It reads like this Almighty God, who has given your only Son to be unto us both a sacrifice for sin and also an example of his godly life, Give me grace that I may always most thankfully receive his inestimable benefit, knowing the gate, being at the gate, and also daily endeavor myself to follow the blessed steps of his most holy life by the power of the same, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you that you have said these words to your followers, many who had heard it, many turned away without having their heart changed at all, and yet those who are called by you effectively followed you. We are hearing the same words today, the same spirit that has helped Matthew to write these words are ever near us and within us, As we hear these words and as we enact the Lord's death and resurrection through the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, gracious Lord, we ask that you will make this as real as the lunch we will have after this, that your presence will be more real to us than the substance we see around us in some ways, so that you may become more and more real in our life, so that you will help overcome our problem of perspectives, that we will be reminded of the presence of a person of Jesus, That there is a promise of perils that at the same time there is a greater promise of the triune God ever journeying on with us, ever aiding us, ever dying in our place and living with us. Thank you for that promise. Thank you for that reality. We love you for you have loved us first. In your name we pray. Amen.